so good to exalt Jesus together and to remember that we are here for the holy God Almighty. Well, church, as uh, I begin this morning, I want to begin just with a brief expression of gratitude. Uh, As most of you know, this will be my last opportunity to open the word of God with you as one of your pastors, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, Thank you for being used by the Lord to be just an immense blessing in my life, in Katie's life, and in the lives of our children. Over the past decade, uh, the Lord has done a gracious, glorious, and miraculous work uh, through you. He's done it through his word, he's done it through his spirit, but he's also done it through his body, his people, each one of you, and we praise God for that. We praise God for his faithfulness and his love that's been expressed through you. We praise God for the joy that it's been to serve you, for the joy that it's been to be served by you, and for the joy that it's been to serve with you. So to God be the glory, and thank you for all of your love and kindness toward us. Well, this morning we're here to hear from the Lord. And so let's turn our attention to the word of God. And uh, as I begin, I want to share with you one truth that has been particularly helpful for me over these last 10 years of life and ministry and following Jesus. And I think it's here in our passage this morning. Here's the truth. We do what we do because we want what we want. And we want what we want because we think what we think. This is true of simple, seemingly meaningless things, and this is true of the most important things about us. For instance, brushing our teeth. Why do I brush my teeth? Because I want a pretty smile. And why do I want a pretty smile? Because I think it makes me more attractive to people. Or... Why do I brush my teeth? Well, because I don't want cavities. And I think that brushing my teeth will stop me from getting cavities. And so it starts with my thinking, my thinking impacts my wanting, and my wanting impacts my actions. Why do I discipline my children? Well, because I want to please the Lord and I want to point them to the life that is pleasing to God. And why do I do that? Why do I want that? Because I think that that would honor the Lord and I think that that is what would be best for my children. How do we change? How do we come to look more like Jesus? How do we grow in righteousness? We are transformed by the renewal of our minds. Again and again and again throughout scripture, God's word tells us that transformation takes place when we meditate on truth, when we fix our minds on the promises that God has given us, on the character of himself that he's revealed. We can only be transformed by the gracious working of God through the power of his spirit but there is also a clearly defined process in his word whereby we are called to fix our minds on truth. Behind most wrong living is wrong thinking. Right living begins 
with right thinking. Uh, John Piper is helpful here. That's no surprise to you. He says this, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. We are enslaved by sin's promise to deliver us happiness, but sin always overpromises and always underdelivers. This is the same reality that Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century pastor and Scottish theologian, he called it the expulsive power of a new affection. I love this idea. It's like inside my heart is all of my affections, all of the things that I love, and I do what I do because I want what I want, and until I want the right things, I'll only continue to do the wrong thing. And so if I want to do what is right, that pleasure, that passion that I have within my heart, it has to be replaced with one that is superior. Something else that is better than what is already there has to come in and expel it from my heart. If I wish to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, then I must overcome the promise of happiness that is held out by sin. I must believe that there is something better than what sin promises, and that is full and forever satisfaction in Christ Jesus. All sin is a turning away from God to seek satisfaction in something else because we think in our minds that that is superior to what God promises us. Pride, pride is turning away from God toward myself. I love me more than I love God. Covetousness, it's turning away from God to things. I love things more than I love God. Lust, it's turning away from God so that I might find satisfaction in sex. I love the pleasure that sex brings me more than I love God. Bitterness, it's turning away from God in order to find satisfaction in revenge. I love the feeling of revenge more than I love God. Impatience, it's turning away from God to find satisfaction in my own uninterrupted plan of life. I love my plan more than I love God. It's what St. Augustine calls a disordered love until I can fix my wanter because it is severely broken by sin, then I will only continue to pursue after that which I most desire. I must replace my desire for sin and all of the promise that it holds out with a superior pleasure found in God through Christ. It starts with my thinking. I think this is what Peter is telling us in our text this morning. Uh, if you would please grab your Bibles. We're gonna open up to 1 Peter chapter one. 1 Peter chapter one, we're gonna pick up in verse one and read through our text today through verse 21. It says, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now our passage for this morning, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Brothers and sisters, hope makes us holy. Filling our minds with truth and our hearts with hope makes us holy. Look at verse 13 with me, please. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. A more literal translation of this verse is girding the loins of your mind. 
Okay, so back then, uh, men would wear these long, flowy, robe, tunic, shirt type things. And when they were just hanging out, doing life in the marketplace or having conversations or relaxing, they would have their long tunic shirt going like all the way down to their feet. But when it was time for them to go to work, or when it was time for them to go to war, they would undo their belt, they would take it and they would cinch it up and then they would tie their belt tight and they would gird it up so that they were ready for action. This is the picture that Peter is giving us in verse 13. We need to gird the loins of our mind. We need to prepare them for action. If you are going to live a life that is pleasing to God, if you are going to advance in holiness, it's going to take purposeful and intentional work. No one becomes holy on accident. It's not the direction that we naturally lean toward. It's not the propensity of the human heart. The propensity of our heart is never Godward. So we must, by God's grace, in the power of the Spirit of God, prepare our minds for battle. Now, last Sunday, we showed how God is the decisive actor when it comes to our salvation. Remember, it was according to his great mercy that he caused us to be born again. He's the one that keeps our inheritance. He, by his power, is the one who guards us through faith. Now, in light of that, in light of having the prior working of God in our lives, as the essential foundation, you and I are being called to action. Peter calls us to gird up the loins of our mind. He then tells us, the end of verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first way that we prepare our minds for action. We set our hope on Christ's return. It is a call to fix our minds on and to place our hope in all that God has promised to do for us in Christ when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Now, I suffer from severe myopia. That just means nearsightedness. When I take my glasses off, I cannot see two feet in front of me. I'm sure you all look nice this morning, but I can't see a single one of you. And so what I do to fix this problem of my myopia is I put on corrective lenses. And now all of a sudden, it's like I'm seeing in color. I can see all of you. I know what's there. I know what's going on more than two feet right in front of my face. So picture it like this then, uh, like two feet in front of me without my glasses, there's a ferocious dog that looks like it wants to bite my face off. I can only be filled with absolute terror at the prospect of this dog coming those two more feet. But then I put my glasses on and what do I see? 10 feet behind the dog is its owner holding onto its leash, feet firmly planted. Nothing has changed about the situation. The owner's been there the whole time. The dog's been on a leash the whole time. But now because I can see, everything is different. Nothing's changed, but everything is different. This is the same reality of our spiritual myopia. 
our spiritual nearsightedness. If all we do, friends, is look at what's right here, right in front of us, two feet before our eyes, what's going on in our present life circumstances or even what happens over the some God willing 70 years that God gives you on this earth, then we'll only be filled with fear, despair, and anxiety. If we put our hope in our circumstances for today, that hope always fades. But if you and I, by God's spirit working in us, can view today in light of Christ's promise to return, well, that changes everything. Even if nothing changes, everything's different. If I remember that Jesus is coming again to finally and fully establish his kingdom, then it relieves me of many fears. If I remember all the grace that God promises to pour out when Christ returns, well, then I can be free from worry and from anxiety of the present circumstances. He will pour out the grace of final salvation. He'll rescue us from those who hate us. He'll rescue us from sin. He'll rescue us from death. He'll take us to be with him where he himself will strengthen, confirm, and establish us. Brothers and sisters, don't set your hope on anything else. Don't set your hope on a new job. It won't deliver. Don't set your hope on a prognosis. Don't set your hope on some money that's supposed to be coming in. Don't set your hope on your spouse changing and being someone different. All of that, it's right here. It's only two feet in front of us. Instead, set your hope fully on the grace of God when Jesus Christ returns. This is how we begin to prepare our minds for action. Verses 14 through 16, he continues. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, beware, you and I are being shaped. Every moment of every day, there are multiple entities that are seeking to bring us into conformity with some pre-designed pattern. They're seeking to form us and to shape us. And there are only two options. There are only two molds that we can fit into and look like. One, we can be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Notice again how Peter brings it to the life of the mind. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter four, verse 18. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. And why are they ignorant? He continues, due to their hardness of heart. It's a purposeful ignorance because our hearts are hard. Our hearts naturally hate God and his ways and his will. And this ignorance, it produces certain passions, that is, desires that are fleshy, ungodly, disobedient. Remember, we do what we do because we want what we want. 
And we want what we want because we think what we think. Peter says to us, don't fit into that mold. Don't be conformed to that pattern that was previously yours according to your former ignorance. No, he says instead, be holy in all your conduct. He who called you is holy, therefore be holy. He says, be set apart, be different, be distinct in all of your actions. Prepare your minds for action and set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be given to you when Jesus Christ returns and that will dispel your ignorance. As you meditate on who God has revealed himself to be, as you consider all that God has done throughout redemptive history, as you cling to and hold to and think on all the promises of God, it will dispel that ignorance and it will fill your life with new passions, with new desires, and it will enable you to walk in holiness. He calls us to holiness as obedient children. God, our Father, is holy, and like Father, like children, we too should walk in Christ's footsteps. Peter quotes in verse 16, Leviticus 11:44, where the Lord says unto his people, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you are God's child, then be conformed to the image of your Father. Walk in holiness because he is holy. Do what is good and what is godly and what is right in all your conduct. Please hear me on this, friends. Obedience is not legalism. Legalism is adding to the commands of God. Obedience is faithfully following the commands of God. Obedience is not legalism, obedience is obedience. And obedience is not a nice thing to have in the Christian life. Obedience is a necessary reality to have in the Christian life. This is what the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Peter continues in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Our father is the one who will judge all mankind according to each one's deeds. Actions matter. That is, our choices, the way that we live today matters. It's not pray a prayer, get a golden ticket, and then go about living however I wanted to live or however I was living before the Holy Spirit took up residence within my heart. Our deeds will do one of two things when we stand before the Lord on that final day. They will either condemn us for our unrighteousness or they will demonstrate that we have been changed by Christ's righteousness. Uh, John Piper gives a helpful picture of this reality. He says this, God has a file on every person, 
all you've ever done or said is recorded there with a grade from A to F. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for what you have done in the body, whether good or evil, God will open the file and lay out the tests with their grades. He'll pull out all the Fs and then put them in a pile. Then he'll take all the Ds and Cs and pull the good parts of the test out and place them with the As. Then he'll put the bad with the Fs. Then he'll take all the Bs and the As and pull out the bad parts and put them in the F pile. And he'll put all the good parts in the A pile. Then he will open another file, the book of life, and find your name because you are in Christ through faith. Behind your name will be a wood stick match made from the cross of Jesus. He will take the match, light it, and set the F pile with all your failures and deficiencies on fire and burn them up. They will not condemn you and they will not reward you. Then he will take from your book of life file a sealed envelope marked free and gracious bonus, life. And he'll put it on the A pile. Then he'll hold up the entire pile and he'll declare by this, your life bears witness to the grace of my father, the worth of my blood and the fruit of my spirit. These bear witness that your life is eternal. And according to these, you will have your rewards enter. Enter into the everlasting joy of your master. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the hope that we have for when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ upon his return. For all mankind, our deeds will demonstrate one of two realities. They will either demonstrate Romans chapter three, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes, or they will demonstrate 1 Peter 1, 17, a conducting of oneself in fear during the time of our exile in this life. We are called to fear God. And I think sometimes this can be a churchy phrase that we throw out sometimes. And oftentimes we're given meanings that maybe don't necessarily accord with scripture. I think Tim Keller gives one of the most helpful examples of what it means to fear the Lord. He says this, when a person fears a spider and knows that one is in the basement, his fear is what he orients everything around. Everything is done in such a way as to not have to go to the basement. Fear is that which so controls us, negatively or positively, that we orient our lives around it. Thus, having an overwhelming sense of who God is becomes that which controls us, and thus is the beginning of how we learn to live in light of him. Our deeds will demonstrate what we orient our lives around. Now hear me on this, please, hear me on this. It does not mean that we will be perfect, but it does mean that we will no longer be at peace with our sin. It means that by God's grace and the power of the spirit, we will make war against our sin and we will start that battle in the life of our minds. 
verses 18 through 21 show us how we can wage war in the life of our minds so that we can combat sin and walk in holiness. Verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he, this Jesus, was known before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. How do we conduct ourselves with fear? How do we pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord? We meditate upon all that God is for us and all that God has done for us in Christ. This is what Peter does. He immediately brings us to reflect on and to remember all that God has done for us in Jesus. He reminds us of his perfect and infinite sacrifice. He reminds us that we were ransomed, that we were freed, that we were once slaves to sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, but God being rich in mercy according to his great love with which he loved us, he saved us by grace through faith in Christ. Nobody can boast. It is only through the precious blood of Jesus. And as we reflect on, as we think on, as we fill our minds with who God is and what he's done in Christ, then we can conduct ourselves with fear. We remember that Jesus was the one through whom God planned our redemption even before the foundations of the earth were laid. We think on this Jesus. We remember this Jesus. We draw near to this Jesus. Sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. None of us sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out the promise of happiness. And that promise enslaves us until we believe, until we think on and meditate and the spirit of God uses the word of God to so change us that we believe that that happiness, that satisfaction can only be found in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we will not obey God unless we love God. Jesus told us this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. But we will not love God unless we know him. Unless we gird up the loins of our minds and we reflect on all that God is, all that God has done, and all that God promises to do in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we will not obey God unless we believe God's promises, unless we believe his promise to secure for us a satisfying future in Christ when he returns and takes us to be with him. But we will not believe God's promises if we do not know God's promises. 
And brothers and sisters, we will not obey God unless we fear God. And we will not fear him unless we know him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Let us be a people that are committed to the life of the mind and to filling our minds with truth. And as we do that, trusting the spirit of God to create a deep well of spirituality that wells up and overflows in lives that are full of holiness and righteousness unto the glory of God, not because we're great and we can do it, but because God is great and he's done it through Christ and he keeps doing it by the power of of his spirit. Hope makes us holy. Setting our hope fully on the grace of God that will be given to us when Jesus returns. We do what we do because we want what we want and we want what we want because we think what we think. So brothers and sisters, think on this. Jesus is coming again. Think on it. Jesus is coming again. Remember this and set your hope on this. And even if nothing changes, everything is different. Knowing that Jesus is coming again, it enables me to live a holy life. Knowing that Jesus is coming again, it enables me to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. Knowing that Jesus is coming again, it enables me to live a life that is full of love and sacrifice toward my brothers and sisters. Knowing that Jesus is coming again, it enables me to abstain from the passions of my former ignorance. Knowing that Jesus is coming again, it enables me to rejoice when I suffer for his name's sake. And knowing that Jesus is coming again, enables me to stand firm in the true grace of God. Think on this. And so, Father, we thank you that you have not left us on our own. We thank you that you have revealed yourself, that you have spoken that you have shown yourself most fully and completely and gloriously in our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for all of the hope that you imbue to our lives. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that we together would set our hope fully on you, Lord Jesus. All the grace that you've given us in your infinite sacrifice, all of the grace that you've given us in causing us to be born again to a living hope, and for all of the hope of growing in holiness on this side of eternity as you work in us. Oh God, I pray that we would be a people who would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would prepare our minds for action, fill them with truth, and that you would just cause that truth to crash over us and to fill us as we go throughout our days. Father, now I pray for my brothers and sisters. I ask, oh God, that you would bless them, that you would keep them, 
that you would make your face shine upon them and be gracious to them. Lord, that you would turn your face toward them and give them peace for your glory, for their joy. In Christ's name, amen.